If you have your Bibles, go ahead and meet me in Revelation chapter 3, where we will continue the study of the churches of Revelation. If you don't have a Bible, we would encourage you to bring one. Uh, we do put the words up on the screen, but I'm telling you, there is something different about holding the living, breathing Word of God in your hand. And uh, if you don't have your Bible with you, you're more than welcome to use one of the black ones in front of you. Uh, the passage that we're about to read is going to be on page 966 for your reference. Um, I want you to mark, before we begin, uh, I want to update you just on a ministry endeavor that we're going to embark on this year, uh, starting September 8th. I want you to mark that day in your calendars. September 8th, we are going to be launching a new corporate prayer ministry here at FAC on Sunday mornings. Um, absolutely, yeah, we... Um, I, I've actually spoken with uh, Clay Bannister and Bob Bowen, and they are going to head up this launch. And our intent is to have an area in the church. Uh, we're not 100% sure on the details yet, but we're working these out in the coming weeks. But we want an area in the church where people, uh, our people, you, the body, is praying for FAC, uh, for the vision of FAC, for the future of FAC, for the services. And we, uh, it's our intent that these corporate prayer times will be occurring while the service is happening. And so I want to encourage you that if you only come to FAC for one service and you've been looking for a place to serve and you tried the children's or the youth ministry and teenagers just aren't your thing, I understand. Uh, or perhaps you don't really like coffee and you're not very passionate about that. Or uh, perhaps you tried to be a greeter and you decided that didn't really work out for you either. Look and consider this prayer ministry as an opportunity for you to serve FAC. Um, it would be my hope that we would have so many people praying for FAC while the service is going on that it is without a doubt the power of God moving among our people and in our church. We have often said that prayer is the first priority. It's a core value of our church. It's a core value of the Alliance. And then you reflect on some of our programming and think, you know, how often do we pray for uh, our people and the things going on within this church? And so I have made it a resolve as a, as a pastor of FAC is leading you in that um, this thing could crash and burn. Uh, FAC could very well die at my leadership uh, with, with me at the helm. But it's not going to be because we didn't pray. If we will fail, it will not be because we didn't pray. And so consider that on September 8th, uh, just during one service, we would encourage you, uh, if you aren't serving anywhere else and you only come here for one service, consider coming for one service to pray uh, corporately and then attending the other service. And I promise you that your investment in that time is the best possible use of your time. It's the most important thing that we could do on a Sunday morning. So we are going to be a praying people. And if you're sitting here and you're saying, I don't like uh, to pray around people, if we ever expect to be a missional church, we have to step out of our comfort zones. We, we have to step out in comfort. And let me encourage you to be open to what God might be doing in your own heart as you step out of that comfort zone. I get it. I used to not like praying in front of people either. I also didn't like public speaking either. And yet here I am. 
I heard somebody say once that if you're too nervous to talk to God about people, how on earth are you ever going to talk to people about God? And so if we expect to become a mission church, we must first talk to God about people before we talk to people about God. So September 8th, mark that on your calendars. I will be reminding us as we get closer, uh, but we would love to have you involved in that ministry. Let's look to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be reading verses 7 through 13 this morning. Uh, We are on the church of Philadelphia. It says this, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for this morning, and we are thankful that your word is alive and well today, and that your spirit is moving among our people and among this place. Would you continue to do that, Father? Would you uh, transform us? Would you grow us? Would you convict us where we need to be convicted? And would that prompt transformation, Lord? Would we look at your standard? of holiness and righteousness, and let us uh, uh, just even attempt to reach that, Lord. We know that Christ has achieved it on our behalf, but let us strive and desire to become more like you. And in your holy name I pray, amen. There is a lead pastor in Frisco, Texas, by the name of Afshin Ziafat. He is the lead pastor of Providence Church, but he grew up a devout, in a devout Muslim home. He was born in Houston, Texas, but spent a good chunk of his childhood in Iran until the Islamic Revolution in the 1970s, which uh, forced his family to move back into the States. Uh, his father was very involved with the Iranian Muslim community, uh, and he diligently taught Afshin the five pillars of Islam. And his father would explain to him as a young boy that if he did these to the best of his ability, then maybe, just maybe, he would get to heaven. Um, English was not Afshin's first language, So in elementary school, in elementary school, his parents provided a tutor to him to teach English to him every day by reading books to him. 
Uh, when he was in second grade, his tutor, uh, this woman who tutored him, said, Oshvin, I want to give you the most important book that you will ever read in your entire life. And with that being said, she handed him a small copy of the New Testament and asked him to promise that he would hold on to it until he was older. Fast forward 10 years, Oshman is a senior in high school, and he's playing basketball when he uses the Lord's name in vain on the court. One of the other players on the court confronted him and said, that name that you just used, Jesus, in a disrespectful manner, that is my God. That is my God. Having grown up Muslim, Afshin only ever knew Jesus as a prophet and as a good man. And so he thought the guy was nuts. He thought he was crazy. However, his curiosity was piqued a few days later. As he is flipping through the channels, he stumbles across a, um, a documentary on TV on the life of Jesus. And in this documentary, it's explained that some people worship Jesus as God, and they're called Christians. At that point, it was that afternoon that he dug up that small New Testament Bible that was buried in the bottom of his closet that was given to him a decade earlier. In the coming weeks, he would begin reading this every day under the covers of his bed with a flashlight so his parents wouldn't know what he was doing. Even at school, he would actually debate against Jesus with a fellow Christian student during the lunch period by day, and then he would go home and read more about Jesus in the New Testament by night. Often recounts the moment, though, that the lights kicked on for him. This is what he writes. He says, One day, I got to the book of Romans, and the third chapter completely changed my life. I read about righteousness that comes uh, apart from what I do for God. This righteousness comes as a gift to be received by faith. I was struck by Romans 3.22, which says that this righteousness comes to all who believe. I thought I was born a Muslim and would always be a Muslim, but that verse said that this righteousness was for anyone who believes of any ethnicity. A couple of weeks later, a guy invited me to an evangelistic crusade where I heard the gospel proclaimed, and I came to faith in Christ. As he was driving home from that event, the implications of his commitment to Christ settled in and hit him when he contemplated what he was going to tell his family. In fear of rejection, he decided, ashamedly so, that he admits now that he, uh, he decided to keep it a secret. He, he would sneak out to church. He would intercept mail or correspondence from the church. He would keep his Bible hidden so his parents wouldn't know that he had become a Christian. But one day, under suspicion, because there was evidence of a transformation of change, his father decided to go snooping around his bedroom, and he found Afshin's Bible. So his father confronted him about it and asked him what was going on, and Afshin said, Dad, I am a Christian. 
I could imagine that terrifying moment for Afshin as he waited uh, on his father's reply. And his father responded by saying, Afshin, if you are going to be a Christian, you can no longer be my son. In his flesh, Afshin wanted to abandon the faith so that he wouldn't lose that relationship with his father. But to his surprise, he responded boldly and courageously to his dad saying, Dad, if I have to choose between you or Jesus, then I choose Jesus. If I have to choose between my earthly father and my heavenly father, then I choose my heavenly father. Austin says that his father disowned him on the spot. In the context of Revelation, in our passage today, this was the reality for the first century Christian that converted from Judaism. The Jewish people believed themselves to be God's special people through national identity and religious heritage. And so when some of them began believing in this Jesus, that he was the Messiah, and not just the Messiah, but the Son of God himself, the Jewish people considered this blasphemous and would cast Christians out from their place of worship, from from the synagogue. In that situation, you have to understand that the believers weren't necessarily separating themselves out of the Jewish community or withdrawing from their public witness. They were straight up excluded against their will on account of their witness. They were no longer welcome in the Jewish synagogues. And to be kicked out of these Jewish circles was more than just being excluded from worship. They were being stripped of their culture, stripped of their heritage, stripped of their nationality, stripped of their identity. Just as Afshin had no right to be called his father's son, these new believers had no right to be called Jewish anymore because they were kicked out. It would be like showing up to a family reunion and your own, your very own family telling you, hey, you're not one of us anymore. You're not one of us, and you are not allowed to identify as one of us, and you are not welcome here anymore. So you might as well just pack up your stuff and leave. This is what Jesus is getting at when he says in in Matthew 10, verses 35 through 36, he says, I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those in his own household. What Jesus is saying here is is that I know my claims are so polarizing that even the bonds of family will be broken. I understand the ramifications of my coming and the ramifications of my claims that you, your families may be broken, that family bond. And so could you imagine the type of pain and trauma that these believers in Philadelphia have faced 
all because they wouldn't deny the name of Jesus. The believers in Philadelphia are just broken, utterly broken, because everything they have ever known and loved has been taken from them, and they have been cast out. They are now outcasts to everything they've ever known. These Christians are in need of some great encouragement. And so we look here in verses uh, 7 through 13, really the most encouraging message of all the letters in Revelation that is filled with hope and promise. This is what Jesus wants them to know. Let's take a look at verse 7. We're going to walk through this verse by verse. Um, Just like the other messages, we see a description of Jesus Christ himself, the bearer of the message. The bearer of the message is important. Who are you to give us this message? Well, Jesus says, I'll tell you who I am. This is who I am. He, he is, these are the words of the Holy One, the true one, and the one who holds the key of David and has the authority to open and shut the door. The Holy One, the true one, and if you will, we'll call it the authoritative one. Okay? In the Jewish culture, this title of the Holy One would be reserved only for God. The word holy literally means to be set apart. And so for Jesus to refer to himself as the Holy One is basically, uh, it means that he is uniquely set apart from all other things, that he is the Holy One. He is above all things. Nothing can be compared to him because he is different. He, He is separated, right? And this is significant in that the Jewish people believed that this was a divine title, that Jesus now is claiming that divine title. He's saying these people that have cast you out uh, as believers, they don't understand that I am God. I am the Holy One. He's claiming divinity. And he's also listed as the true one or the genuine one. He's not a copy. He's not created. He is the original, authentic God who always has been been, and always will be. In a culture that was just absolutely saturated with false gods and goddesses that are knockoff counterfeits, that don't even compare to the real thing, Jesus has the right to be called the true one. Why? Well, John wrote this in his gospel at the, in chapter 1, the very first verse. In the beginning was the Word. And when he refers to the Word, he is referring to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. As, as Jesus begins this message to the Philadelphian church, It's almost as if he's saying, take heart that while you have been cut off from your family tree on account of my name, let me tell you my name. I am the Holy One, and I am the True One. I am set apart from all things, and I am the genuine Messiah. I am the genuine Lord. I am the genuine God. The Jewish people have accused me of being a false Messiah, Yet here I am, alive and well. 
Jesus tells the church, it's important for you to know that I am who you believe me to be. I am who you say I am. And more importantly, I am who I say I am. The Holy One and the True One. And He doesn't stop there. Not only is Jesus the Holy One, Not only is he the true one, he is also the authoritative one. We read that he is the key of David, and he opens a door that no one will shut, and he shuts a door that no one will open. This image actually alludes to Isaiah 22. This is almost an exact quote from verse 20, uh, verses 20 to 22. Um, in, in Isaiah 22, God appoints a man named Eliakim to be the royal treasurer and gatekeeper of the royal palace in Israel. And in verse 22, God gives him the key of the house of David, and it says that he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. Only Eliakim had the authority to give you access to royalty. If you wanted to meet the king, you had to go through Eliakim first. In the same way, God the Father has handed the keys of the heavenly palace over to Jesus. And Jesus alone controls access to the Father's royal dwelling place. If you want to meet God the Father, if you want to meet the King, if you want to access God and His royalty, you have to go through Jesus. And we find that not only does Jesus have the authority to open shut the, and shut the door, we read that what Jesus opens, no one shuts, and what He shuts, no one opens. And this shows us how unique uh, Jesus is in his authority and that he is the only one that can determine who has access to God and, and the heavenly royals and who doesn't. Here in this very building at FAC, uh, we have given a lot of the staff members the authority to open the building and to close the building. Right? There, there are plenty of us that you could walk up to and we could come after office hours, after the doors are locked, and they have the authority not only to enter, but to bring you in as well. But this is much different, a uh, much different picture. While here in this building we've given multiple people authority, it, the, the, the picture that we get here is that Jesus is the only authority. He is the only one that can bring people in. There is no other way. There is no other God. Jesus is the only way into the the royal heavens. Right? He's the only one that can grant you access. And the fact that that Jesus opens and shuts the door should, should make us pause. It is extremely significant in this passage to see that Jesus opens and shuts the door to the heavenly place. Don't miss this theological truth. Jesus has not just opened the door and left it open as a free-for-all for anyone to enter, just anyone, as if it's a, this uh, all-roads-lead-to-heaven type mentality. No, but he also shuts the door. 
And if Jesus opens and shuts the door, this implies that some people will get in and some people will not. Some will be granted access and others will be left knocking. Jesus affirms this in Matthew 25 where he shares a parable of the ten virgins. And Jesus uses this parable to describe what his second coming is going to look like. And it goes something like this. There were ten virgins. Think of them like bridesmaids preparing for a wedding feast. And they are waiting for the groom to come to the wedding feast. When he was to arrive, they were to go out with their oil lamps and escort him back in. They were to, to bring him back into the wedding feast with their lighted lanterns. However, five of the bridesmaids were not ready upon hearing that the groom was on his way. The groom is on his way. There's five of them that begin to panic because they are not prepared because they don't have enough oil in their lamps. And then in Matthew 25, 10 through 12, we, we read this, that while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open up to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. The reason they didn't gain access to the marriage feast, the reason that the door was shut was because they were not prepared accordingly. Maybe you're not much of a religious person here today. Maybe you are not a Christian. Maybe you've never given any thought to this Jesus guy at all. But shouldn't this scare you a little bit? Shouldn't this claim scare you that when all is said and done and you come face to face, there's a, there's a possibility that you could come face to face to a closed door? Shouldn't even just the possibility of a closed door create hesitation in your heart and in your mind? Because after all, if you disagree with me that Jesus is real, that he's the holy one and he's the true one and he's the authoritative one, if you disagree with me, that's okay. But in all respect, if I'm wrong, as somebody has said in the past, if I'm wrong, I've merely wasted my life. But if you're wrong, you've wasted your eternity. If I thought that even the possibility that I could come face to face with a closed door when all is said and done. I would want to ensure without a doubt that Jesus' claims either aren't true or that I was prepared for it when that day comes. How must we be prepared so that Jesus opens the door for us and there are no surprises? For the answer to that question, turn your attention to the church in Philadelphia because we're told in verse 8 that they have been given an open door. They've been given the open door. There's some debate 
among commentators as to what this open door is, whether it's an open door to ministry opportunity or an open door to heaven. But I can say with confidence, given the context of this message, that it's most likely an open door to heaven. The, the, the open door is a guarantee of salvation and eternal security. The, the door is open and no one or no thing can shut it. And you'll notice that the door is open, not because of anything they've done, because after all, they have little power. They haven't forced it open by any means because they're weak. They're small. They're insignificant. Jesus is drawing attention to the fact that they are not strong enough or good enough or influential enough to open the door. And so let me take the opportunity to remind everybody, a mantra that we've been sharing often here, is that there is great power in weakness because it drives us to rely on the power of God. There is, there is victory in weakness, in insignificance. Throughout all of history, God has used weakness uh, and turned it into victory. Right In the story of David... And Goliath, little, little David kills the giant Goliath, not with a sword of power, but with a little stone that he picked up by the river. In the story of Moses, you have a a nervous Moses who delivers the people of God out of the persecution of Egypt. He doesn't deliver them with eloquence, but with a stutter. And then you get Jesus, who we're told is the greater David. Who's the greater Moses? And what did he do? He was victorious. How? By surrendering his life to death. You see, this is confusing for a lot of people because our world will tell us that we need to be bolder and we need to be bigger and we need to be better and we need to be more powerful. And God tells you, no, you just need to surrender. Give up. And that is where you will find your life. Give up because you have little power. Don't, don't keep trying to do the same thing over and over and over again because you have little power. So would you just surrender to me so that I can provide you power so you can tap into my power? You are not capable to open and shut the door, but I am. For the church in Philadelphia, in their weakness, they surrender to Jesus and his authority and their strength. They depend on Jesus to, to open the door, almost for them to say, I can't open the gate to heaven, but I know the guy who can. I know a guy. I have, I have an inroad with the gatekeeper. Will you let me introduce you to him? It was open to them. The invitation is there because they kept his word and did not deny his name. So that's what it says right there. They believed in his word and they have not denied his name. This is very close to Romans 10, 8 through 9, when Paul writes that the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. You kept the word. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will have an open door. So if you sit here and you're one of the ones that maybe disagree with me at this, at this point, and you say, Mike, how, how do I prepare? Believe his word 
Don't deny his name. Proclaim it. Proclaim it proudly, and you will be saved. You will have an open door. And it's here that we see the beautiful picture of redemption for these Christians in Philadelphia. Because as the local synagogues expelled these believers as they have excommunicated them from the community, Jesus welcomes them with open arms into his household. The Jewish people truly believe that they have excluded Christians from God's special group of people when all reality, Jesus says, no, these are my people. And I am bringing them in as you have rejected them. I am bringing them in. They are brought into the fold. They are brought into the family. They have a seat at, a, at the table. What a great comfort for us in this time to know that while the world rejects us, as the world will always reject us, Jesus receives us. As the world rejects us, Jesus receives us. And as he receives the Philadelphian church, he offers four promises to them in verses 9 through 13. And all of them, just as a side note, begin with Jesus saying the words, I will. I will. The fulfillment of all of these promises is a direct result of Jesus intervening for his people, promising them that he will not sit idly by, but he will step in. When will these promises be fulfilled? All of the commentators I read agree that all of these promises are actually pointing to the second coming of Christ. This message, differently than the other ones, is by nature pointing to the end times when Jesus returns. What will happen in the end? What are the promises that Jesus gives? First, God promises in verse 9 that there will be vindication. What does he say? I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. They will be vindicated from their oppressors. There's quite a bit of irony here, isn't there, that the Jewish people, the synagogue of Satan that Jesus refers to them as, fully believe that they will be the ones with the Christians at their feet when in all reality, having denied Christ, the Holy One and the True One, they will be the humbled ones. Our friends and our family can mock us now, but there will be a day that we are vindicated. There will be a day that we're vindicated. That's the first promise. The second promise, God promises in verse 10 that there will be protection. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. They will be protected. We as believers will be protected during the judgment on the world. Once again, the commentators that I read all believe that this hour of trial is a direct reference to what we would call the tribulation that's going to come during the end times. It's going to be an intense time of God's judgment on the world. But believers will be protected from God's wrath. Now, there's some debate on what this will actually look like, but that's not important. 
What's important is the universal truth that at the time the world is judged, the believers will be kept from God's wrath. Protection. Third, God promises in verse 12 to make them into a firm foundation. He, this is what it says, he, uh, the, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He's going to make the believer a pillar in the temple of my God. This communicates the idea of security. It communicates the idea of stability. Craig Keener, one of the guys I'm reading right now, writes that believers will not only be welcome into the open doors of Jesus' household, God's temple, they will constitute a part of it. Thus, expelled from Satan's synagogue, they remain and are a part of God's temple. This promise would have carried a very special meaning for the church in Philadelphia because the city itself physically was on a fault line and they would experience devastating earthquakes. It was very difficult. It was a difficult city to set up a permanent home because of these tremors and people would often flee to the countryside to avoid the aftermath of such earthquakes. For the believer, we will be made into a permanent unshakable fixture in heaven. Now there's two significant truths in this. If I could almost sidestep a little bit because I think there's some practical implications here that we ought not to miss. Two significant truths. First of all, this constitutes worship. This constitutes worship. The primary purpose of the temple was to worship God. And so if we are a part of the temple, if we are a pillar in it, a permanent fixture of it, then we know that heaven will be an eternal state of the worship of God. That will be our primary purpose in heaven is to worship God, and it will be beautiful. As we come before him on Sunday mornings and you walk out of the service saying, that was, a, that was wonderful worship. Just think about how wonderful it will be when it's not tainted by our sin. We will worship God in all perfection and it will be glorious. It will be beautiful. A second significant truth with this is that in heaven... If you are, a, uh, you are a part of the temple. And this actually reminds me of 1 Corinthians 3.16. When Paul writes, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? This is so significant. I, I want you to know that I think that this building is a great building. It's very resourceful. It's very useful. We do a lot of things uh, in these walls. But this building that we occupy right now is not God's house. This is not the house of God. This is not holy ground. And, and when, when we say things about this being God's house, it robs us as believers of the glorious and beautiful truth that this building isn't God's holy dwelling because that right is reserved for you. The Spirit of God dwells in you. You are the temple. 
If you are a believer in Jesus, if you are a disciple of Christ, you are the holy ground. And it's glorious. Your identity, that is your identity. One who the Spirit lives in, who dwells in. And that brings us to the final promise. Christ promises vindication. He promises protection. He promises foundation. And finally, he promises identification. In the last half verse, uh, of, the last half of verse 12, he says, I will write on him, he's referring to the pillars again, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of uh, heaven and my own new name. Essentially, Jesus is branding the believer and claiming, claiming ownership over him, giving him a new identity. One commentator writes that in the ancient world, when a slave was freed, he would often keep the household name of his master and was even granted his master's social status. Although born into bondage, a benevolent owner could give that servant a new identity. In the same way, we have been in bondage to our sin, and our master has freed us from that and has branded us with a new identity. We have adopted the household name of our master, Jesus, and we have been given his social status. As the believer is marked with God's name, we are given a new identity. We are no longer ourselves, but rather we are bought with a price. And that price is the precious blood of Jesus, the Holy One, the True One. Let's pray. And Lord... What a wonderful reminder it is, Father, here in Revelation 3, that we have so much hope in the world. As believers, Lord, and as we go through just the muck and the grime of a fallen world day by day, Lord, let us be reminded of these promises that we indeed are a pillar in heaven, branded with a new identity. That Jesus Christ bought us with a price at his death and you have held on to us and you have granted us an open door and if we are a follower in Jesus, no one will ever shut that door. What a wonderful promise that is. Lord, I pray that we could grasp that and handle that and walk in that truth. And in your holy name I pray. Amen.